You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop, the show that's a little bit of everything with a K-Pop twist. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about the show. That's 17-C-A-R-A-T-K-P-O-P.weebly.com. Enjoy the show! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. I'm Hope, and I am very excited for this episode of the show. I've been doing a lot of reading and research that is just so fascinating to me, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So we are going to start a discussion today that will continue into at least one more episode. So this is just part one today, but there is a very long, interesting timeline I want to start going down in today's episode, talking about basically the globalization of Korean music and overall Korean culture. So throughout history and how K-pop has taken over the world really, how in general the Korean economy and history has shaped how other countries receive K-pop content, basically how the Hollywood wave took over and how different countries respond to K-pop music now and have in the past. There's just a lot of history and a lot of very interesting trends that have happened over time so it's kind of a history of k-pop music but also korean culture and how not only have those things shaped other countries but other countries have influenced them in turn just overall globalized influences in music over time there's a lot to get to that trust me it's really fascinating and there's some really really jaw-dropping moments in music history to talk about but before we get into that I have some news updates, the miscellaneous amount of news updates to get to, including we have to talk about how an old song is suddenly charting at number one again. Uh, I do want to point out the Easter egg at the end of Seventeen's docu-series that I caught, and I have a little tangent to go off of with this Rolling Stone piece that really upset me. There's a whole bunch to get to, so let's just get right into it. So, the roundup of news updates for the day will start with our talk about SM Entertainment's new project. So SM Entertainment has launched a partnership with the Seoul Philharmonic Orchestra. And so starting next month, SM Classic will be what sounds like a regularly a regularly scheduled, almost like the SM Station monthly releases. This will be an SM Classic release that will likely be monthly as well where an orchestral version of a classic SM Entertainment song will be released, which sounds very cool and just screams XO, especially early days XO songs. And SM Entertainment has not revealed yet what song will be the first one to be released in July, but if it's not an early XO song, may I suggest Goodbye by Taemin? I mean, the instrumentals on that song are everything not not really like a classic orchestra sound but just the instrumental itself is just superior so something to think about SM Entertainment number two Red Velvet's Irene and Solgi are finally almost ready to release their debut subunit EP and it will coincide now with the release of their first reality show together in less exciting SM Entertainment news, so there has been an issue, it feels like the, I believe, 2018 Mamas, maybe 2019 Mamas all over again, with the EXO issue. So basically this award show called the Soribata Awards has admitted that EXO was not nominated this year for the main prize in error. So the statement says, quote, 
we have confirmed that there were serious professional errors made, such as information not delivered during the process of communication between staff and agency running the awards, which is a super vague and overly descriptive way to say, I guess we messed up. And they, it's very odd. It's like, it makes me wonder if fan backlash is really what happened and now they're chalking it up to an error, but apparently EXO will be nominated, so I guess all's well and ends well. It's an odd situation, but they said that they plan to announce the new nominations June 16th, so look out for that. And also they said that there is an act besides EXO, which they did not name, but another artist that they, in error, apparently forgot to reveal. I'm very confused how this all went down, and if I find out more about behind-the-scenes gossip about it, I will keep you posted, because I'm very confused how you uh, mess up the nomination reveals like that. But speaking of awards, Mr. Bang, the leader of Big Hit Entertainment and one of ARMY's overall favorite people, has won another award. It's called the Pony Chun Innovation Award, and it is given to what people call the greatest innovators of our time. That's the basic description of the Pony Chun Award, which is basically basically a tribute to his work building Big Hit Entertainment, which was valued as one of the most innovative companies by Forbes last year. So that he's really, yeah, innovative is just the key word for his business in terms of marketing, in terms of philosophy, all sorts of realms. So congrats to Mr. Bang. That is a well-deserved award. More award wins, well, more informally, but still wins. So the other day, Everglow's Dun Dun was suddenly charting again, and it has it, it came out, I believe in March, it came out months ago, but Dun Dun was suddenly trending again, number one on the K-pop iTunes charts, and it turns out it was because a famous person who was streaming a video game on Twitch was playing Dun Dun in the background. And so that really got me thinking about what we've talked about regularly on the show, which is all this merging happening this year between video games and music and how people are influenced by one because they heard it through the other. So they hear a new song for the first time through a video game or they discover a video game through the music. The the Fortnite Travis Scott concert comes to mind. So all of those connections between the gaming and music worlds, this is just another example of that. So... I just found that very interesting, and that is an interesting way to for companies to think about finding more and more unique ways to promote their artists' work. It's kind of like TikTok right now. If you want to promote your song through TikTok, you could also get that maybe the same popularity, and it'll rise in the charts again if you promote old stuff through gaming and streams and things like that, subtle forms of product placement in a way. Just a thought. More achievements artists have reached this week. Seventeen and Stray Kids both broke personal records in albums in terms of album pre-orders. So Seventeen broke their record and now have over a million pre-orders, and Stray Kids now have over two hundred thousand, which is so huge. Other huge news: Twice now has officially a hundred music show wins, a hundred music show wins throughout their. So far, still relatively short career. 
they have so much potential. I'm so excited for the next 100 music show wins. So congrats to Twice on that. More congrats to me because in the last episode, I talked about my senior project and how I spent this past semester really studying and looking into the world of CGI and basically the evolution of technology and virtual influencers that are taking over Instagram and whatnot. And all of that research, those interviews, the data, all of that is now available for you to look at online, as promised. So if you go to virtualhumans.org, you can find that their latest blog post as of this recording time is is showcasing my senior project. So at virtualhumans.org, you will see me, Hope, the author of the project and so it'll be released in three parts so part one is out now although there is a link within part one to the full pdf so if you want to read 266 pages of research you can do that now but if you want to read it in small amounts that are excerpted for the website then just wait and if you subscribe to virtualhumans.org newsletter updates you will be notified through email when the next part goes live if you don't want to subscribe to the newsletter you can always just check back there and it will be there. So if you look under my name, I have an official bio through them now. So any future writing I do for them will go in my section as well. So keep an eye out for that. It's very exciting. I worked very hard in this research. So it'll be cool to share that with the world more and more over time. And speaking of those digital influencers, we will have to talk about them again in the future because they're not going anywhere. Because Michaela, one of the most popular ones who I've talked about a lot already on the show, just signed with CAA, the Creative Artists Agency. So she's the first digital client, the first virtual character who is now a client of this talent agency in Los Angeles. So... We will hear from Michaela a lot more very soon, so that will be fascinating. We'll have to talk a lot more about that in the future. One last news update. So, 17's docuseries is all premiere now. All the episodes are out on YouTube for free now, so make sure you check those out. But one quick thing I want to say about it is that I hope my fellow carrots also notice this, that the episode titles... In the the Korean words for the episode titles, if you rearrange them, they spell out a sentence that's something along the lines of, I'll be by your side as you walk down this lawn road or this lawn as you, not take the road less traveled, but something along those lines of, I'll be with you as you walk down this um, uncharted, this go through this uncharted territory, walk down this unwalk down road. I'm not explaining this as poetically as Seventeen did, but the point is that if you rearrange the titles for each docuseries episode into an order, it it turns into a sentence with the same that same sentiment as the song lyric. So the sentence is basically the same sentiment as the song lyric from their surprise special fan-dedicated song release we got this year. So... It's a very, very cool connection there. I am, you know, we love to see it. So, all right. Now it's time for my little tangent. So, if you didn't know, so, okay, first of all, I do want to say I love Rolling Stone and they do a lot of great coverage and I don't like to bash them, but this has got to be called out. So, so don't, you know, go put them on blast or anything. 
but you can be critical, firm, but fair, and yeah, don't just assume they do a terrible job covering K-pop because of this one major, majorly problematic coverage of K-pop. They have done some good reporting on it, so keep that in mind, but we have to talk about this. So basically, they have released their their list for the top 12 K-pop releases of 2020 so far. So I'm just going to name them, and then we are going to get into the issues with their list. So, okay, here's what they had. BTS's On, Super M's Jopping, Monster X and French Montana's Who Do You Love, Got 7's Not By The Moon, Twice is more and more. Cravity's Break All the Rules. G Idol's La Ta Ta. TXT's Can't You See Me. NCT 127's Punch. August D's Dechuta. Blackpink and Lady Gaga Sour Candy. And Holland's Narcy. So, you should probably. <laughs> I hope you already can see why this these are issues here. So, first of all, on their list. They included three songs that were released in 2019 and one song that was released in 2018. Yes, GIL released an English version of La Tata this year, but that shouldn't count as one of the best songs of 2020. The, the song initially came out two years ago. So four songs out of 12 are... So a third, a third of this list are songs that are not even from 2020. The other issue I have is that this feels very much like it was Googled or someone went on Wikipedia to do a quick cursory five-second review of what K-pop is popular this year and just put in all of these titles. It just feels generic. It feels like almost like a computer just kind of spewed this out like, oh, here are some popular titles because it, it just doesn't. It feels like there was a lack of thought that went into this. And so I, I looked further. I didn't just skim the list and then decide, well, this was a bad idea. I really looked at what how they described and came to their conclusions about why these are the best K-pop songs of 2020, even though they're not all from 2020. But there are other issues with it, too. So when looking at their explanations, it also sounded like they might have not even heard the songs. Or maybe they did, but... It's just like very, like I said, it all feels very generic reading these descriptions. Like they really just, it's just a bunch of words that a computer spewed out. Like it's basically like if you type into a computer your word jumble and then it gives you the answer because you got stuck and can't solve it. It's like they put in a bunch of song titles and then the the computer spewed out descriptions of those song titles or something. I mean, I don't know a better analogy for it, but the issue is that they're just, okay, really they're wrong for another thing. Like, so first of all, there's the year issue. And second of all, they're wrong about a lot of these in terms of the best of 2020. And I'm going to go into why, but like, just in terms of being, trying to be an objective music critic, these are not the best of the year in terms of production, in terms of song quality. Don't get me wrong. I honestly, I think I like every single one of these songs. These are all on my playlist. They're all bops. But in terms of thinking, trying to think like an objective song critic, the best 12 songs of 2020, not these. So this is not it. 
Um, so first of all, we have the year issue that they didn't check. Second of all, the descriptions bug me. And third of all, one-fourth of these, so, I mean, it's only three of them, but still, one-fourth of these entries on their list are English songs, which isn't bad, but it's just interesting because I would hope that an article about promoting Korean music would focus more on Korean content. If you're only going to list a top 12, maybe it shouldn't be so hard to keep the focus on on content that's not English. It just feels weird. Like, this is what, and we talked about this a lot on the show before, I know, is just, it's frustrating sometimes with how Western media covers K-pop in a way that makes it seem like, like they want to recommend and promote songs that have to do with English or can be compared to Western artists, whereas you, I, I personally don't think you need to have that as your introduction to the world of K-pop. I mean, I really got into it with songs like Fantastic Baby from Big Bang. Like, just sonically, there are ways to really fall in love with K-pop, if, even if you don't speak Korean. So to imply that the best way to slowly get into the world of K-pop is through the songs that are at least partially in English is just, that doesn't, that argument doesn't hold water to me. So there's that. The other thing I was bugged by is like I said, the reasoning and the comparisons. So there were uh, so there were a few comparisons that got to me. So they, for twice as more and more, they said, quote, sounds like something Fifth Harmony could have recorded if Fifth Harmony had nine members saying in multiple languages and managed to all get along. Okay, so there's a lot there. So first of all, why are we comparing K-pop groups to Western groups? I'm just tired of that, and it's not even very accurate. So can I, I mean, I guess I could picture Fifth Harmony singing more and more, but not really. It is very much a twice song. So the comparison's a little out there. Second of all, if Fifth Harmony sang in multiple languages, a couple of the members do sing in Spanish sometimes. Just gonna throw that out there. Third of all, and if they all managed to get along, feels like a very, I mean, yes, they did have friction. They obviously had a lot of drama in, in the group, over the years, but it just feels unnecessary to add that detail to the, to this review of a twice song. It just feels irrelevant and just stirring stuff up. And like, why, why say that? And, you know, I'm, I just, and it, just thinking about, you know, they didn't, they didn't have that slight in there for any of the guy groups, but of course the girl groups, we have to go with the, the catfight tropes, I guess. And so, yeah, anyway, that bugged me. Then there's the their review of Sour Candy, which basically said, oh, now we know the genre is global because they worked with powerhouse Lady Gaga, which is great. We love Blackpink and Lady Gaga, but it's it's just weird to me again, like I said, talking about how, well, this indicates that K-pop is now mainstream because they worked with a Western artist. I mean, I guess that that assumption makes sense, actually. But I don't know. It's just the comparisons are unnecessary. I would have liked to see a full list of just K-pop stars' work and not no collabs with Western artists, frankly, just to spotlight them more. But that's just my preference, I guess. One more thing we gotta discuss is so the monster, the monster X, uh, who do you love review? So, okay, first of all, this was not one of their best songs at all released 
it wasn't even released this year, but they listed it as 2020. But even if it was, they have much better high quality songs released this year. So this feels, yeah, it feels like catering to what they think the Western audience likes most, not what is truly the best quality sound. And so they're, and their description. So quote, come for the shouted out chorus, stay for French Montana rhyming Gordon Ramsay with Monica and Brandy. What in the world? So, yeah, that is French Montana's lyric, but come for the shouted out chorus, stay for French Montana rhyming Gordon Ramsay with Monica and Brandy. Uh, yeah. So, if I, I could really go off for a, lo- a lot longer, but I won't, but I could about how French Montana's verse fell very phoned in, and it's frustrating when there are Western artists collaborating with K-pop stars in a way that feels like it was very much thrown together to appeal to a Western audience, as if we can't be appealed to without Western influences being overtly combined with our Korean music that we're into. So it's just, that's that whole collab kind of bugged me, and it seemed unnecessary because French Montana kind of phoned it in. Like, okay, let's, ta- let's take, for, ex- for contrast sake, Halsey and BTS's collab. Halsey showed a genuine interest in learning the dance and the choreo for the video and for filming the video on set with them, for just really getting into it, for performing it live with them. She really showed an interest in that and in them as people in general. So she just really bonded with them and then made that song with them. And so that collab is great. And then you've got French Montana, who the one time I saw him perform with them, he really sounded like he forgot the words or what like barely remembered who he was performing with I mean I'm sure it was all thrown together and he sent in his verse and barely knew these guys so it just when it feels so manufactured because it is it's 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 frustrating so yeah so I'm just for contrast sake I'm just saying that sometimes these western clubs bug me and so for them to call out French Montana's random verse with those weird lyrics, those goofy lyrics was like really that's why we're praising this song it was just what are we doing so that's my those are my thoughts but to uh think about one thing that I do appreciate is that this gave me the chance to really think about how I would have written this or how maybe maybe my list is more like what someone who really listens to a lot of K-pop would have put on this list for 2020 releases. So just a thought. So I did make my own list. So here are my picks for the top 12 best K-pop releases of 2020. And these are not honestly my personal favorite 12 of 2020. That list I'll come up with eventually, but that's really hard to think about right now. But I was just thinking objectively in terms of quality, in terms of production, in terms of just overall encompassing that artist's true style in terms of uniqueness, in terms of just catchiness, all of those variables I thought about as a music critic, as objectively as a K-pop fan possibly can. And so, and I wanted to include B-sides. I did include some Japanese releases from K-pop stars, but it's all K-pop stars, no Western collab. So here is my list of the best quality releases this year in no particular order. NCT 127's Nonstop, which is better than Punch, don't sue me. BTS's We Are Bulletproof Eternal. Twice's Make Me Go. Everglow's Dun Dun. Chanyeol, Lehigh, Chanmo, Raiden's Whole Collab, Yours. Seventeen's Fallen Flower. 
Stray Kids Top, Monster X Flow, Solar Spit It Out, Day 6, Zombie, or maybe Love Me or Leave Me, I haven't decided yet, V from BTS with his OST Sweet Night, and AT's with Answer. Because it, these are the songs that I think are so true, the artists are so catchy, so like, AT's Answer still in my head. It came out, I believe, in January, and it's still in my head, so that's just high quality. Then there's songs that are just so well done and deserve more love, like Sweet Night. There's Make Me Go, which shows Twice's unique evolution, but also shows that they're not fully stepping away from their image. So it sounds like a Twice on Wall, so sounding more mature, which is a cool line to be able to toe. It's a skill to really uh, be able to show your maturity without losing your whole musical identity, if that makes sense. So it still sounds classically twice, but it's growing up with them. And so it's, it's just very well done, very good job there. Yours is a really cool song because it combines, it feels like it combines like three different songs where you have, you know, you have like the the techno voice and then you have Chanyeol's voice and then you have Lehigh's layered on top and just somehow all the voices still go so well together. So it feels like three people singing the song in three different locations but all at once and it somehow works really well. Falling Flower I put on here because not only is it a really cool song that sounds just very different and unique to a lot of other releases this year but also because of the live performance the choreography is just wonderful and that visual really makes me appreciate the song even more and how they go together to make a a masterpiece. Um, non-stop I put on there because that really showcases not just NCT's classic style still, but also everyone's, well not everyone, but you know, more vocal variety and shows off a lot more vocal skill that they have. Um, we are Bulletproof Eternal, of course, because I'm ARMY and I'm biased, but also in an objective way, We Are Bulletproof Eternal really is a beautiful song. It encompasses so much emotion and so many memories of reflecting on the past seven years with BTS. And even if you're not an ARMY, I think you can sense that kind of depth of emotion by listening to it. Solar Spit It Out I put on there because it's very unique and memorable to me and catchy. And it also was a great debut single. And it's just her life, her performance, her charisma as she performs it. It's all very, her stage presence during the song really makes this me like the song more and makes the song really come to life. And I really respect that. So yeah, there's a lot more I could go into with these songs, but you get the gist. So I'm just saying Rolling Stone, please do more than just one Google search. At the bare minimum, do a few and verify the year your songs were released. And maybe don't pick just all the title tracks and all the most likely to be chosen tracks because if you're trying to really help promote K-pop and not just get clicks, then maybe pick songs that are under the radar more, not just the ones that every other list has already included that all the fans already know for sure. Just a thought. So... Alright, rant of the day over. Let's get into, after these messages, we are going to get into today's conversation about history and culture and music and all that good stuff. So this timeline is going to cover music, but also what influences music output and pop culture and the globalization or lack thereof of it. So how countries' cultures influence each other is always linked to 
the country's history, economics, politics, all of that, which is why I'm including some variables in this timeline that may seem irrelevant. They're not. So let's start with 1910. 1910 through 1945 is when Japan basically controlled South Korea and occupied the Korean Peninsula. And then five years later, after that occupation had ended, there was, long story short, the Korean War, and the U.S. took the side of South Korea, which has been the case in other wars as well, where the U.S. and South Korea have been allies and against Japan. So that tension has continued to linger, which we will see as I go through the timeline. Then if we move on to 1962, that was a big year for Japanese music. So in 62... This Japanese boy group company basically formed, and so J-pop boy groups basically came about through this group called the Johnnies. So the Johnnies was started by this man who goes by Kitagawa, and he basically started the Johnnies. Sometimes they're called Johnnies Juniors, um, or there are some other names for them, I believe too. But basically, they go by the Johnnies, and this company that Kitagawa started. Basically, it's kind of like how you view, I guess, a K-pop training program where you're you're living together in dorms and whatnot, and you're training to become a music star. But the Johnnies had a lot of different things about them, and basically, it's hard to explain the structure. It's a little NCT-like, where there are different combinations of members at different times, and all the members are kind of one group, but also different groups. That's kind of how I would explain the Johnny's concept. And so that happened. We're going to talk a lot more about them later in the timeline. So 1965, so a few years later, there was this treaty that was signed that basically signified the start of Korean and Japanese diplomatic or at least civil relationships with each other. So they signed a peace treaty of sorts in 1965. And that didn't necessarily translate into full economic and cultural cooperation, as we'll see, but it did have an impact. So then we had the 80s, and in the 80s, rock music from the Western world really came into influencing China. And so while Japan and South Korea are easing their tensions, but the U.S. um, still has that history with siding with Korea, there's also then what comes into the picture is China's role. And China was actually being influenced a lot by the U.S., in ways that may have upset Chinese conservative leadership because Western rock culture in the 80s, you know, it was all the, you know, those slogan sex, drugs, rock and roll. So it was very much a, uh, an influence on Chinese citizens that really made them think about and want to embrace the rock star mentality in a way in terms of just individualism and just more sexual expression and more overall openness and more of a rebelliousness, I guess, in the traditional sense of the word, and just more carefree. So their attitude changes were shaped by Western music in ways that that the rulers of China and people who preferred traditional modes of thought in China disapproved of. So there was some cultural tension there. Then if we, if we fast forward to 1997, two big things happened in culture that year. Well, many more, but I'll focus on two. So first of all, 1997 is when Hong Kong gained its status as a semi-autonomous territory. So before that, it had just been considered affiliated with mainland China. We talked about this at length 
in one of the very first episodes of the show. So if you want to hear more about the Hong Kong protests, how those started, how Hong Kong is technically like considered China, but not part of China, it's semi-autonomous, talking about all of those discrepancies and how those shape those countries, or the cultures of those parts of China and what's mainland China and what's not. We go into all that in one of the earliest episodes of the show. So if you go back to the one called Stay Tuned, not the one that's called I Repeat Stay Tuned, but the first one, which is just called Stay Tuned, that is the one where I talk a lot about, I believe that is the one where I talk a lot about this, the Hong Kong situation. So I won't go into that now, but anyway. So that happened in 1997, which really meant that the United States, the United States eventually after that entered into a unique trading status with Hong Kong. So there were, you know, less less taxes and things like that on Hong Kong compared to mainland China. So while the U.S. uh, tension with mainland China continued and continued to translate into economic, um, you know, taxes and economic consequences, it was there was more lenience and more warmth between the U.S. and Hong Kong. So that started. And then also in 97, there was one of the most popular J-pop girl groups of all time that started called, well, there are different terms for it. Morning Musum is what they're known for being called, or Momusu. I'll just call them Momosu. And they also go by Morning Girls. But they were this group that was started in 97 and huge, huge groups with constantly changing numbers, and there there was a lot that went into this group's popularity. And so they start they came into prominence in 97. 1999 is when there was what started in 1999 and then went into 2010 was a, a, a decline in the popularity of Sanrio. So Sanrio is the company behind Hello Kitty and her friends, they really started getting the sales slump in 99 and it lasted a decade. So during that time, Japanese culture was trying to be less reliant on Hello Kitty products and on products from Sanrio overall. So really trying to find ways to basically have a cultural presence that was different because that wasn't work that wasn't working anymore. So that was happening. And meanwhile, in 2005, Thailand really got the Korean wave. So the Hallyu wave hit Thailand in the mid-2000s when K-drama started airing in Thailand. And to this day, Thailand is still very much, there's a huge fan base, there's a huge appetite for Korean culture in Thailand. And so actually, you know, that goes back to the history of wars and such too, because Thailand was the first Asian country to send in troops to help South Korea in the Korean War. So they've definitely been an ally with South Korea in the past, and that has in turn helped the warm feelings toward their culture. So that's something to keep in mind as well. And so actually, South Korea's tourism before versus after this Hallyu wave in Thailand actually jumped from a few hundred thousand tourists a year to over two million. So huge impact. And so, and it really also led to the technology sector, um, a cooperation and development in Thailand because Thailand started working with Moon Jae-in on e-commerce and overall tech infrastructure. So really, basically a lot of tech and cultural advancement came to Thailand as a result of cooperation with South Korea. So there are warm relations there in the cultural aspect. So 
all of that happened, and then came the 2010s, where around the world we developed this way of thinking called collaborative consumption. Collaborative consumption, aka the sharing economy, which was basically a time when businesses based on sharing came into prominence. So Airbnb, Uber, things like that. And so the sharing economy came after this recession of 2008, and then people started becoming more fiscal, more fiscally conservative, more focused on saving money, so they were focused on a sharing economy, makes sense. And so it was also a time where research was showing that it was beneficial in the long run for businesses more if they spent less time on selling on literally selling products and more time on the actual marketing and face-to-face customer to worker interactions basically so the interpersonal interaction aspect of sales became very prominent and well known at this time and that was more than ever before at least and so that really came into play as well so interpersonal relations and sharing and that whole communal mentality of economics really took charge not necessarily just because of a tech boom but because of all these other variables in the 2010s so so that started happening 2013 is when NetEase Music launched which is it has 300 million users it's huge in China and basically NetEase is a platform that targeted re- that actually recently partnered with Cube Entertainment and so Cube Entertainment, you know, home to Pentagon, G-Idol, those groups. So it's actually a very interesting development that started in 2013 with NetEase forming, but now just recently this year partnered with Cube. So that is something to keep in mind. We should discuss again in a minute. So by perhaps co- extreme coincidence, also in 2013, the same year that this streaming platform NetEase was formed, this term was coined called the unicorn company. And if you didn't know, a unicorn company is basically a startup that is valued at at least a billion dollars and it's private. So if it's a private company, meaning no one has, can, you know, you're not in the, on the public stock market. Um, and so you get to have more secretive financial dealings in a way the, if you're a private company with over a billion dollars in value, you're considered a unicorn company. So basically NetEase um, got the term unicorn company. So huge impact is what I'm saying, uh, thanks to the streaming service. And another big universal impact happening at, uh, in the 2010s was Q-pop. Yeah, you've heard of K-pop, C-pop, maybe M-pop if you listen to Mando Pop and think that's a little different than C-pop. But Q-pop is another story. So Q-pop is... Basically, it's it's pop from Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan is a place in Central Asia that started Q-pop in the 2010s, and 91 is probably the most prominent group that you might have heard of from the Q-pop world. And so if you're wondering why haven't I heard of Q-pop before, that's because it never really took off, and that is because of some cultural differences, really, which we'll talk about more later, but... There was a lot of backlash to the Q-pop trend, especially when the Q-pop group 91 did try to tour Kazakhstan, and when they went to more conservative towns, there were protests outside their shows, there was a huge amount of public backlash to their shows, um, because Q-pop really tried to be inspired by K-pop, by really 
showing a lot of androgyny in terms of their fashion and wardrobes. And so this goes back to what we were talking about an episode or two ago about how in these binary thoughts, men should look masculine and women should look feminine. And the fact that they were distorting that conservative uh, old-fashioned view was really um, disarming and unsettling to viewers. So there was quite a revolt against these guys looking not masculine in their in their context, in their view of it. And so the, it led to a backlash. So Q-pop hasn't really taken off. 91 and similar groups are still out there, but they're not necessarily thriving or gaining huge global audiences. But they are prominent enough, I guess, that we know who they are still. So 2016 was huge in the music world. So 2016 is when... K-pop was banned from China for 18 months. And this was because the USA and South Korea formed a military partnership of sorts again. So they came back together to create this missile defense system called the THAAD, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System. And basically, this was a blow because um, basically... So South Korea, one of South Korea's biggest trading partners then was China, with 25% of exports coming from there. And so it was a very, this this action led to a wave of sanctions, in and that basically limited the ability for South Korea to financially and culturally thrive in China. So China basically retaliated with sanctions for this military action that did not involve them, did not include them in it. And so basically, I know I'm really, really simplifying this this complex history, but so there was a lot of animosity as the bottom line stirred up among the Chinese and against the USA and South Korea. And so, so actually in 2016, that year, uh, 80% of Chinese citizens said that they would support banning South Korean stars from appearing on Chinese TV shows. 80%. That's huge. And so actually, Korean culture has always been popular, especially among young generations in China, but their their sense of loyalty to their home country's rules and sentiments seems to surpass their passion for Korean culture. So they were willing to give up seeing their favorite Korean stars on their TV as long as they were doing what they felt was best for for China in terms of their values and, and pride in their country. So, so basically, Chinese K-pop fans really were in a tough situation here. And so that led to some tension that still exists, of course. And so, yeah, it was a huge year for Hallyu the Hallyu market shrank to nearly half, so a huge profit blow for South Korea during this activity. And another big moment that year was when Lottie Group, which, um, if you don't know, Lottie, Lottie is basically like a Disney of sorts, if you think about it. So, you know, it, it owns theme parks, it owns hotels and other businesses, it owns stores, it owns more specific merch. So basically, it's like a Disney of... Asia, I guess you could say. And so it's a big conglomerate. And so this Lottie conglomerate is huge and influential. Think of how influential Disney is. So that's Lottie as well. So Lottie basically agreed to sell some land to the USA and South Korea for their missile defense system. And so 
when Lottie agreed to give land to the defense project, they suffered a cyber attack the very next day. And, I mean, reports vary about who actually caused it, but it's widely assumed that China retaliated by punishing Lottie and having a cyber attack on their site, which was a huge blow to that company. So basically, there are a lot of economic, a lot of uh, heavy economic toll was taken on South Korea um, by China, so that led to a lot of tension. And then two years later, in 2018, China seemed to be of the mind, well, we can do what K-pop is doing in our own way. And so basically China started its own version of idol competition shows that year. So they had like idol producer and shows like that. So they kind of followed K-pop formulas, but thought they, they could be more successful with them or at least as successful. So basically their show was actually viewed a lot in South Korea. So oddly enough, so when in China, citizens decided to ban K-pop content, it didn't work the other way where K-pop, where people in Korea were not listening to and watching Chinese content. So, so the, and the ban did only last 18 months. So anyway, so basically what happened then is that more than, um, so more, more than a hundred million people in South Korea watched this idol producer Chinese, uh, singing competition show. So more than South Korea's entire population size, but somehow over a hundred million people watched, and I mean, it, it was just a massive success. So China was feeling very confident about its ability to follow certain formulas and be uh, culturally successful in uh, terms of popularity. And so while it may seem like then things were okay, you know, because um, people in South Korea were watching Chinese shows, and it seemed like Things weren't necessarily warm, but the countries were kind of not in a hot spot, or not a hot spot, um, you know, there, the tension was a little eased, I guess you could say. Um, things were, their tension was brought back up to the forefront of everyone's minds in that fall of 2018, because that is when the Supreme Court issued a formal ruling about, um, basically forced, uh, South, some South Koreans were forced into labor in, um, during war in Japan. So there's, again, a lot of lingering um, resentment in South Korea towards the Japanese for the forced labor of South Koreans there. And so we will get into that history another day. But um, the Supreme Court case basically said that 10 of the forced labor victims would be um, allowed by the court to be compensated. So Japanese companies had to financially help compensate 10 of the forced labor victims. So that Supreme Court ruling came out, and of course then tensions kind of rose again. Um, and they tried to, you know, dispute what was going on. It was the whole thing. Then we have uh, 2019. 2019, there is another court issue that's happening where a Federal Trade Commission investigation started in July of Johnny's. Remember the company that I said started out in 62 that is responsible for J-pop boy groups. So this Johnny's Juniors group was under a federal investigation. So basically, they were accused of violating this Anti-Monopoly Act because basically this detail I found really fascinating. So with this Johnny's Juniors group, 
And this sounds very weird coming from the USA too, when the goal seems to always be, you know, export, 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 make sure you spread your global appeal to no, no matter what, and global reach is ideal and considered a victory. For some countries, that is not the mentality. So that is the case with Japan. Like Japan, their, their artists don't really care about trying to reach a global audience, frankly, or at least not in the same way we think about it. Because like take, for example, and we talked about this on that early episode too, they, they don't have, it's, it's harder to find their music so when, you know, artists try to get their music available to as many people as possible, but not J-pop stars, sometimes their music is hard to find or just totally off iTunes or Spotify, and or the titles are not translated into English as often, so it's not made for easy access or easy finding. And, you know, um, in Japan, they don't have Spotify, so basically they, they have a lot of physical CDs as a focus, so just even getting the music and listening to it is just harder and they don't and they're not really focused on reach as much as just internally within the country spreading the popularity of their content and so so anyway so that's basically a uh, kind of a side note for now but basically it's it that's just a setup i used to explain why why this Johnny's Juniors company was under investigation because they basically tried to avoid getting press coverage. They didn't want to spread their influence and they basically tried to stop the media from running with coverage, good or bad, about their groups. So they really, I mean, hush hush, this guy is a very weird shady past. So the guy who started this company, he basically, so he, he basically... Yeah, there's a lot I could go into, and it's hard to summarize, but he basically just was very elusive. He did not want to talk about this whole thing he started. He did not want to talk about this company he created. It's wild to think about. Can you imagine, like, Mr. Bang never talking about Big Hit Entertainment? Like, why? I mean, we granted, it does seem like we only have, like, one public photo of him, but that's another story. I'm just saying, like, the... It's, it wasn't just that this guy refused to, or didn't, was shy, was camera shy and didn't want to, and was really humble and didn't want to talk about his work. He actively sought to suppress press coverage of his groups. He did not want them to be known about. He, he really just did not want to be seen in public. He refused to be photographed. He refused to be interviewed. He wanted to say, stay totally out of sight, out of mind. And so... On the rare occasions when journalists have gotten a one-on-one -on -one time to talk with him and interview him, he requests no pictures, so there are no pictures of him out there, as far as I know. And so he, he will meet with them very, very privately for a brief interview, but he keeps it very short, very vague, and doesn't really talk about much at all about the history of the company, about the group specifically. So it's very odd. He's very elusive and I don't know if that's part of a marketing strategy or he's just a strange person but some it, something's up and so that started an investigation last year where basically they accused him of of blackmailing and pressuring the media in illegal ways to stop covering Johnny's Juniors and the other groups that he is responsible for creating so it, it's it's really wild there's a lot more to the story but that's the gist of it so then if we move into today's world, we have Tencent, 
which is a Chinese company that is gaining more and more traction. It formed this unique licensing deal a few years ago that is the first of its kind. So Tencent now, it was the first major partnership between a music company and a main internet provider in mainland China. So mainland China is now connecting, uh, having this big partnership between their internet and this streaming company. So this could have a huge impact on the music consumption in China. And so actually Tencent just bought 4 million shares in WMG, and they, they already own 9.1% of Spotify's shares, 100% of Riot Games. So Tencent really owns a lot of stock in gaming and music and internet. So Tencent will continue to be very influential over Chinese culture and music. Also worth noting is that Tencent owns 40% of the stock in Epic Games, which is responsible for Fortnite. So very, very influential and worldwide because these companies like Fortnite or Epic Games, you know, they're popular worldwide. So this is very influential. Now if we fast forward to today's world. So what I'm seeing trend-wise, so... Basically, the coronavirus has upended a lot of the way things were going. So it looked like maybe global mu music was just going to become more and more global, thriving worldwide, and all those trends were really thrown up in the air. All predictions were thrown up in the air thanks to the virus. So basically, just from January to March, South Korea's economy shrank 1.4% more than it had at that time last year. 1.4% more is really huge, honestly. If an economy shrinks like 1% more, that's still a big deal. And so 1.4% is a really big deal. And really, because South Korea was one of the hardest hit areas outside of mainland China and was hit early. So it had a very, very long impact. And actually, just up until April, so like the January or February to April range, the in Korea... Over 200 concerts sh tours were canceled. So that is a lot of money. That's billions of dollars lost from that amount of time. So imagine what this whole year might look like with this virus. And, you know, in April alone, their exports dropped over 24%. So really, South Korea, which has been all about exporting culture, um, given the variables we discussed in one of the earlier episodes, um, they... They've really, really taken this hard, and it's hard because South Korea not only has these variables, um, like the virus, to, that are affecting its cultural output ability, but also lingering tensions with Japan and China and things like that. So that is something to keep in mind, and so that continues to happen. There, there are a lot of... Other things that are happening just in terms of the globe responding to the virus. So, like Goldman Sachs is reporting that total global music value is going to drop by 25% this year, music revenue globally. So, 25%, that's insane. And, you know, just in the USA, here in the USA, there's two main issues happening where, first of all, companies that try to get loans right now to weather, weather this storm are companies that don't need it. So companies that are taking the loans 
are not the small businesses that need them. They're greedy, bigger companies. And there's fear that that will be the case for radio and other music industry-related groups as well, where small music venues and small radio stations that are more local won't get the money they need because it'll be scooped up by big conglomerates. So there's that worry. And then there's the financial woe of these actual concert venues where, um, you know, over a thousand small concert venues in the USA might close by the end of the year if they can't pay the bills. And so that is really a big concern, especially if they don't get federal bailout money, which is not in the picture as far as I know. So there's that to think about is the long-term impact, even post-vaccine world, post-COVID world, all these venues might permanently close. And so that's just the USA, but I'm sure this is happening elsewhere too. So that's something to keep in mind. Another way that culture is being influenced now is that, so even let's say if countries like Japan really did want to have more cultural exports, they can't really right now. So let's say they wanted to start shipping out more albums right now. They can't start that effort now because a lot of airlines are suspending operations due to a lack of demand or in general due to safety concerns and travel restrictions and things like that. So like in the USA now, if you pre-order K-pop albums, they come here by boat. So they're not getting flown here. So if you were hoping to get your album order in two to three days, now it'll come in two to three weeks because it's coming by boat. So it's really a big issue in terms of travel and exports of cultural goods. So that's going to have a lot of impact as well. So yet another big impact is the fact that um, different different countries still rely on each other. So despite the the historical tensions, they're, 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 it's a weird, tricky game, and that's why I'm trying to explain, is that it's all complex in how it's interconnected. So South Korea and Japan's j- diplomatic relations, or the lack thereof, influence the financial status and then the cultural output ability of the country because... Basically, they still rely on each other and they still have to get along to some extent because they need to, they basically, South Korea and Japan both are responsible for major components of computer chip production and other technological production that basically they need each other to make a whole. They need to, they both contribute to making the same tech products. So they need each other in that aspect. And so it's, it's not just hard in terms of past tension that is resurfaced, but also logistically now to work together to ship materials. It's a longer process now, which which is slower because of demand anyway, but even if it wasn't, they couldn't get to people as fast, so there'd still be that demand, and the supply demand are just not in a convenient um, combination right now. So there's that that's happening. Another big moment, that is why I brought up Hong Kong earlier, is that Hong Kong, apparently, this may change, but as of recording time, the U.S. Secretary of State just confirmed that Hong Kong may not be considered any longer by the U.S. as independent from China, from mainland China, which is a huge deal, not just in terms of democratic values, but if Hong Kong is no longer considered autonomous or semi-autonomous, that affects their trading status. So while the USA was able to cooperate more economically with Hong Kong in the past, now it'll just be like mainland China and we'll get taxed higher, we'll probably do less business with the U.S. as a result of this. So there's a lot of friction happening there. 
And so Hong Kong will lose a lot because the USA is such a big power player on the economic world stage that if we decide not to partner with Hong Kong as much, Hong Kong really takes the brunt of that blow. And Hong Kong will no longer get this worldwide trading hub status that it has today and formed for itself thanks to its independence or or somewhat independence, you know. And so that's going to be that's going to have a huge lasting impact. And so these are all variables to consider as we think about what the future of culture holds. And so so basically what I'm trying to say and sum up here is a lot in a short amount of time. But basically over history you have the US and South Korea who have been partners in war which has led to warm relations, led to um, relatively um, warm policies in regarding trade and therefore, you know, cultural um, transmission. And in general, the globalization of the world and the growth of a sharing economy also contributed to that ability for K-pop to spread around the world. And then you have our relationship with Hong Kong, which has led to some political influence around the world. It has led to some music uh, influences around the world, like the Western rock scene in the 80s. And so it has led to some of that cultural transmission, but not to the same extent because mainland China is uh, still, you know, we have a, a more of a, of a, I don't know, more of a fraught history with that. And so there, there are those tensions that linger. And so that affects what culture is popular around the world and what people see culturally. And then you have Japan, which the U.S. has been an adversary with and South Korea has been an adversary with. But then again, Japan relies on South Korea for some economic contribution. They rely on each other to create certain tech products and things like that. So in terms of economic uh, processes, they try to work together. But then, you know, there are other variables to consider. And now South Korea is relying more on other countries because they're not in an economically good place at the moment. But then again, other countries aren't either. It's just a very complex time for relations between countries. So it's all, all of this is really to say, um, to kind of outline um, as well as I can, how the past few decades have really, how history is linked to economics, which is linked to relations with different countries, which is linked to cultural output, which is really, which is linked to what culture is popular. And so it's all influenced by each other. And so hopefully that kind of is a very long way to explain why K-pop was able to spread globally, because it was due to help from the USA, frankly, and Western influence. It was due to its, uh, its genuine desire to spread globally, while other places like in Japan, they didn't really care about using Western influence in the U.S. as the ability to transmit their culture further. They didn't really care about creating that partnership because of other past tensions for unrelated reasons to the music industry. And so Japan has kept to itself. And when, when any element of Western press or Western culture has seemed to be attempted to be exhibited in Japan, so like press briefings for these groups, special events for these groups, interviews with the the leader of the music company, they don't even follow along with those 
uh, vague similarities to the U.S. system of, of the music industry. They don't even go there, and so that's why, I mean, they're shrouded in secrecy for other reasons too, but the J-pop world really does not follow the U.S. model at all, so it's very hard to compare them, but it does explain why K-pop as a music industry model and as a just cultural currency is so widespread in the U.S. and worldwide then, um, due to all this Western influence. So it just goes to show how much and how complex and layered these trends are. So when wondering why C-pop or J-pop is a certain way or why music industry in another part of Asia is a certain way and compared to another, it's, it's not an easy way question to answer in any way is what I'm saying. It's very layered and and any assumptions you were drawing that seemed to narrow down the predictions and explanations for these industries is out the window now because of the coronavirus. So we really don't know what's happening even in the USA music industry future, but especially not overseas. Plus there are still tensions from very recent military activity and the recent declaration of Hong Kong is no longer autonomous in the eyes of the US, U.S. economy. So basically we're in for a lot of unpredictable moments that affect trade or the lack of trade between countries, trade wars, and that affects that affects output, that affects what music we get to listen to and access, that'll affect fandom support or lack thereof, that'll affect music sharing and streaming. It's going to have big long-term ramifications, so this is just something to keep in mind. And and I think what will happen in the future and how it's been in the past will be shaped by two broad concepts, how social media is used by a country and a country's values. So social media and value use ultimately influence who the fans are and who is reached by the cultural influences. And so here are just a few quick examples from other countries we haven't talked about yet, and then you'll see what I mean. So in Algeria, there is quite a significant K-pop fandom growth over the past few years, so that is why a couple of K-pop artists have actually released Arabic versions of their songs. So in this African country, uh, in there was there's a specific Algerian K-pop fans Facebook group, and the members of this Facebook group took a survey. So twenty thousand responses were added up, and ninety five percent of responses said that they preferred Korean entertainment to other countries' entertainment. So if they're getting any external culture, any external cultural consumption, they want it to be from Korea, 95% of them. And 97% of them said that they want to learn Korean. And 93% said that they use some Korean words and expressions in their daily life. So the Hallyu wave has hit Africa as well. And those results all over 90% I found really fascinating. So that's something to keep in mind. Also, that you have media that is a little different in how it shows the popularity of artists. So like in China, they don't have Twitter, for example, although some famous figures have Twitter, but it's not really the tool that's going to be used to share songs or anything because if you're not famous and you're not sharing songs on there... One place that the music industry has been trying to focus more attention towards these past few years as they've reached kind of a saturation point when it comes to growth in Europe and the USA 
is India, although that is not giving them the returns they expected. So Spotify launched in India just recently and it hasn't really gained the subscribers they anticipated. It has increased the value of the music industry in India, but in terms of actual audio subscription money, that's really not the the major financial gain of it. So the adoption of Spotify in India really helped with ad revenue affiliated with Spotify accounts, but not the actual paying subscriptions. So the music industry's bets on India may be not bearing fruit. And so we'll see what happens there. But part of the reason the focus has been there is because of the tech coverage there. So they have this fast-growing tech infrastructure that has been eyed for some time now as being a future source of just in general cultural influence around the world. And India actually has this goal. They want to be considered one of the world's top 10 music markets. So most monetary value assigned to their music markets. They're number 17 in the world right now, actually, but they want to get in the top 10 by 2022. A prime example of how the coronavirus has made a lot of plans suddenly seem impossible. But we'll see what happens. Another interesting... uh, place where k-pop fans are is saudi arabia we did talk about saudi arabia in one of the bts themed episodes of season one i believe and how they have this goal of vision they call it vision 2030 and their goal is by 2030 to have had a lot more music acts perform in saudi arabia because they are hoping to have less economic reliance on oil and other things that they are known to to they are known for producing they want to have less economic reliance internally and more economic they just want to not put all their eggs in one basket if that makes sense so they really want to diversify their economic resources and what they're known for financially and so they're they're really focusing a lot on entertainment and especially live entertainment to show that new image and to gain financial growth and so that's obviously a plan that is definitely more far-fetched now to think about by 2030 when we have the coronavirus stopping those touring plans and then of course you have the cultural criticisms and backlash that certain artists get for performing there in the first place, which we talked about on that that past episode. Other example is Iran. So in Iran, actually, they probably don't have a huge K-pop following, at least for the girl groups, because female artists are not on the album covers. So there, if you look on um, I, I, on websites from Iran that like I, the iTunes of Iran basically you'll see the covers they have K-pop album charts there but they look very empty because the females are gone so like twice is more and more album it's still charting there but all you see is a black background with the words at the top because all the members are taken out of the picture so yeah that is the extreme version of literal erasure of female artists, but that's definitely a roadblock um, there to K-pop. So there, and there are many other examples of of this kind of stuff. And what I mean by that is that from Algeria to Saudi Arabia to Iran to China to Japan to the USA, all over the place, these um, these different countries, how they 
have this how you wave or reject the how you wave is based on social media use and values. Social media use in terms of what actually gets promoted image-wise and content-wise, what content is consumed and promoted there, and that really ties into values as well, um, what, based on gender expectations, based on long-term val value systems in place, based on overall economic goals, which are tied to values of a country. And so, really, the main value that encompasses all the other values I've talked about is whether the focus of a country is really on, whether the economic fo focus of a country is on spreading influence or keeping an insulated identity. So with Japan, for example, their whole thing has been not even worrying about press. They want to just, they just focus on the mar the market is, the target audience is their fellow citizens. So they really don't worry about out, you know, trying to sell overseas and things like that. So, and there are pros, there are a lot of pros and cons to, you know, have, there are a lot of pros and cons economically to both ways of viewing music promotions. You know, focusing on an internal audience allows you to hold on to a passionate fan base with a shared value set, but then of course you might lose out on a lot of opportunity elsewhere to promote the music. But then, of course, if you're just if you're focused too much on global outreach, it might end up not paying off, and you might spend more promoting than you actually gain back financially. And there's a whole other realm to it then. But that ultimately shapes media. So, like I said, in Japan, if they don't have Spotify and they have physical CDs, and they actually really in in the J-pop stars really really promote themselves not even as much by radio. Radio play is not really the way you get popular as a J-pop star. It's really about TV appearances. So if they have such a heavy reliance on TV appearances and commercials and the like, that's a totally different media strategy. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. So just some things to think about. So ultimately what it comes down to is how a fandom receives K-pop content and views it is based on their country's media and their country's value system and how those have this interplay going on. And we'll see how those change because values and media use can shift drastically during major moments in the world like the coronavirus one we're living in. So we'll see what happens because maybe this is a great time and more countries will want to do what Japan does with music and focus internally on on making money in music internally and then maybe they would prefer to promote overseas you know it can really change dynamics right now and like I said before if this time changes political dynamics that will change economic dynamics which will then change cultural consumption or vice versa in any order so there's a lot at play here so a lot to get into, and we will talk a lot more about the how you wave hitting Europe and other parts of the world on the next episode. But this was just in in a kind of an overview and a timeline. I tried to piece together everything I've been reading in order of how these different aspects of music industries in different countries came into being, and what they say about those countries and their acceptance or rejection of K-pop. And so, 
That's really what it comes down to. I, I will say, though, as much that is so up in the air right now because of the coronavirus and travel and shipping issues and all of that, the one thing that I, w- that I do think is pretty reasonable to assume is that the ultimate influence on musicians' actual songs, the ultimate influence on the actual songs that we are getting, not in terms of packaging, merch, all of that stuff, or live shows, just the actual song aspect of this. What is ultimately the biggest influence on that this year will be the canceled festivals and other canceled events. So not even the events going on, but the fact that they were canceled. And what I mean is that those events really are huge points of almost like a family gathering of sorts. It's when you connect with people, when you meet and reach out to other people, and you expand your circle. It's all about networking. And if you're a songwriter, if you're a producer, if you're a choreographer, if you're an artist, you really, you can form these lifelong partnerships with uh, with potential collaborators when you meet up and meet each other at Coachella, for example. So for these people from around the world to not have the chances to to meet each other and communicate and exchange numbers, that's going to have a huge impact on songwriting and on the influences of the songs then. Because say you've been writing K-pop for years and then you run into a J-pop songwriter at Coachella or something, and not that they would be at Coachella, but you know what I mean, um, and then you, you get to talking then that might, and then you get to songwriting at some point together, then maybe more Japanese influences will appear in your songwriting style or vice versa for them. So, you know, how different music genres influence each other is even going to change. So what I'm saying is that there are going to be huge ramifications in terms of overall song content from this pandemic. So that is yet another thing to keep in mind and think about. And We'll see where it takes us in the future. There's there's a lot that goes into every show and convention, and I could probably spend hours more talking about, but I won't, about the ways that all those different aspects of the convention experience, the exposure those artists get at the time, the the networking, all of that, the financial aspect of those shows, the travel aspect of those shows, the cultural um, consumption that takes place when you're at those events, all of that and how it shapes worldviews and then outputs. It's, you know, endless, endless ways that this, that the cancellation of those big events is going to have long ramifications. So we will see what those are and hopefully, uh, hopefully they'll be for better and not for worse. I, I don't know. Um, this is all so new and unprecedented. So we will just see how it affects K-pop fans around the world this time we're living in. But also, it's important to, if you're really like me and you love solid answers and predictability, and you don't like me saying that this is all uncertain and up in the air, do keep in mind that we can always look to historical references. So basically, the past can help us learn what to expect in the future, because history repeats itself, or at least rhymes. So... Just keep that in mind to try to figure out where we, where the music industries all over the world go from here and where they have or have not gone. It's really quite a pivotal moment for these industries. So I have more to say about all of this, about the FTC investigation 
in the J-pop world about Miku and her friends and their impact and about these other aspects of C-pop, J-pop, etc. as well as uh, the influence of Hallyu in other countries that I'm going to get to in another episode, but this was the starting point. <laughs> so, all right, moving on real quick. Before I go, just know that I will go back to quarantunes and my other regular segments in the next episode. I just wanted to focus on this today for the most part and then get to a few news updates, of course. Um, but real quick before I go, your what to watch and what to listen to recommendations. What to watch, Tale in the Masked Singer, of course. NCT's Tale was on the Masked Singer and it was just great. And what to listen to is BY. BY, that's letter B, letter E, W H Y. BY is really underrated. He's a rapper. He's really just good. <laughs> I mean, his whole catalog is good, but really, I've been, lately I've been listening to a lot of. His album, The Movie Star, but also his um, his past singles. So he has these two we released at once. One was Suit and one was Man in the Suit. Those are both really good. So Suit, Man in the Suit, and then of course Goddess a Day and everything else on the Movie Star album is great. So check out BY if you haven't already. Uh, real fast before we go too, don't forget that this Saturday, with the time will be announced, but it's going to be free on YouTube this Saturday. Make sure you check out June 20th. There's going to be a fan-made NCT concert live stream. So if you follow at Neo City and Neo City Citizen, Neo City and Citizens um, on Twitter and Instagram, you can find out the time and everything. And if you go to at Neo City and Citizens on Twitter, you can find links to print out fake tickets and stuff like that so you can act like it's a real show and get hyped up, get some photo cards and other printables. So get excited for that and spread the word about it, please. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. So, all right, I will see you in a few days. I uh, hope this was interesting. I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.